Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 108 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Laura Watkins and Vanessa Dietzel. Laura and Vanessa are the authors of The Performance Curve and they're experts in how to maximize your potential at work while strengthening your well-being. Laura is a neuroscientist and a leadership and organization specialist, whilst Vanessa brings unique insight from her blend of corporate experience, coaching and teaching breath work and yoga. And together they've created a really interesting framework. In the next hour, you're going to learn how to break the cycle of going through the boom and bust of life and how to ride the performance curve what we can learn from listening to our emotions and focusing on our feelings, the power of paradoxical thinking and how it can help us uncover the truly best outcomes in challenging situations, a process to allow you to find what your guiding purposes are in life, and so much more. Despite countless technical difficulties which were given to us by the joys of recording this conversation remotely over the internet, the knowledge and the wisdom that Laura and Vanessa share in this conversation has really stuck with me and I know that you're going to get a lot of value from it too but just before then if you're new here make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now there are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way and I don't want you to miss them but in the meantime here it is episode number 108 of Life and Lessons with Laura and Vanessa. So Laura, Vanessa, thank you both for being here. It's a pleasure. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much for having us. So we're here today to talk about your book, The Performance Curve, which um, I've had a little read of it. And it seems to me to be one of the closest things that I've seen uh, to an antidote to hustle culture, right? You're making the case that a slowed down, a more considered and a more intentional life is one which is not only perhaps more worth living, but one that will actually get you more results in the long term. So just before we dive into the book, can you talk to me about what kind of problems you're looking to overcome in publishing this book? Yeah, so thank you, Sean. And that's it, really. This, this, this book is about you know, how do we help people to live their best life? We only get one life um, and let's make the most of it. And that's really what Vanessa and I are trying to do in our coaching work and for ourselves and for our families and, and the people around us. But um, what we've been observing over the last few years is how much the always on high pressure culture, you know, the, the, the push to perform and so on that we all, you know, many of us feel um, is affecting that, you know, whether that's our client um, who we feature at the start of the book, who, who uh, signed up to a, um, a, a gym with a crash for his young daughter, only to find that after a few weeks, he actually started to use the crash for for childcare whilst he got on with his personal admin, you know, which obviously is, I mean, I can really identify that with that, but, but it's not a life well lived. It's not good for him or, or his daughter or, or probably even for his work. Um, or, you know, whether that's me, you know, I think back to a time when I was on holiday in Italy a couple of years ago and beautiful place with a lovely swimming pool. And I remember quite some time that I spent in a, albeit very nice uh, little office in our, in our villa whilst my daughter was at the pool with um with her friends and, and other members of the family and you know that those are choices which we can't take back and I think we you know we recognize that in ourselves and in many of the people that we work with and, and spend time with that actually those trade-offs uh are not 
you know, that we're not making those trade-offs in a way that really represents what a life well-lived looks like. So what we wanted to do with the book is really, first of all, ask people to step back and say, like, what is a life well-lived for you? And, and what, you know, what can we really um, do to help you go after that? And we wanted to, to help them to really get to that life well-lived by bringing together all of the different elements of the experience that Vanessa and I had, you know, uh, something we were very curious about was what could we create from bringing Vanessa's experience as a yoga teacher and a breathwork therapist, as well as obviously a, a business coach, together with my experience as a neuroscientist and psychologist. You know, what could we have from that kind of breath, brain, body and business combination that would really be a, a valuable um, toolkit for, for, for having a life well lived? Do you think, just on that point, that we as a society have fallen for a an incorrect definition of performance and an incorrect definition of success so i'm 26 years old and ever since i've been working and growing a business it seems to be that the only noise that comes from culture and from the internet is that if you're not working constantly if you're not going all out and lacking sleep and lacking looking after yourself you are not trying hard enough you're not successful and it was only maybe in the last two years that I've actually stepped back from that and realized that you know if I'm putting 16 18 hours a day into building something but then never enjoying the the upsides of building that or even just enjoying the simple pleasures in life despite what society would have me believe a success I've almost gone on this journey of realizing that there is far more to life. Do you think that that is true of those that you speak to and interact with, that we've been missold what performance and success are? I'd, I'd give a definite yes. And what we see changes things then is exactly what you're describing is when people start to actually question what success means to them. For some people, it might bring a lot of fulfillment. It is a life well lived that they're working a certain number of hours, but they're also managing to have balance in other varied ways of their life and it works for them. But by and large, I, I would agree that we have um, mistaken busyness or effort for impact. Um, and a lot of the personal development space, although professionally, I think we're seeing a disentangling of that and much more encouragement to also say, what does success mean to you? What is actually the impact you want to achieve? And how can you do that in the context of your life overall, like you were alluding to? I really echo what Vanessa says, but also I build on that, which is I actually think, Sean, that we also can't get results. You know, we can't be effective when we're pushing ourselves as hard as you described. So we can do that for a certain short period of time, but over the long haul, actually our effectiveness gets undermined by the fact that our well-being is not as strong as it should be so what we've tried to do in this book we call the performance curve is is look look at the, the the definition of performance and say actually you know we we all want to be effective but we all want well-being as well partly to have a good life as you describe but partly because the two things complement each other when we're feeling better we're going to be able to perform better and when we perform better it gives us a spring sorry we're going to be more effective and when we are effective we have a spring in our step and we're out the door earlier and more able to enjoy our weekends so our well-being is better they work in a in a virtuous cycle and I think when we stop and acknowledge that and then invest in both things we start to get that virtuous cycle which which actually over time should hopefully unlock more impact as Vanessa said rather than um, have us just treading on the hamster wheel. 
Yeah, and the key distinction here is what men, Laura mentioned on, on effectiveness rather than the busyness or, or be doing things. So what are the things that allow us to be effective and what really matters and not just chasing that many posts or that many activities or emails to write off, but what are the ones that will make a dif difference um, and being more discerning about that. And in order to be able to set those priorities, for example, and know what it is that matters and how to pursue it, it requires us to bring our best in terms of our brain, for example, our best brain functioning. Um, and very often um, when, when we can't see the, the forest for the wood, no, what's the, the, the trees for the woods? Um, it, it means then we get into this scattergun approach, but we're actually not really bringing the best of our brains. So in the book, as a bit of context saying, you speak about there being two types of curve when it comes to how we go about trying to uh, reach success. Uh, the first is the boom and bust curve, which when I was reading that section, it truthfully could have been a biography about me because I resonated with it so much. And the other is the alternative that you offer, which is the performance curve. So just so we're all on the same page here, can you quickly talk us through what the boom and bust curve is and what the performance curve is? Yeah, they're, they're great little shorthands to just identify which curve we're on and, and which way of operating we're falling into. Um, so the boom and bust curve means we are responding to challenges as if they're threats or crises. So in an adrenaline-fueled way, and that's what's feeding what we just talked about, the sense of just, I need to keep being busy or something else, almost like driving me internally to do those things without really having stepped back and um, thought about what the problem is and how best to approach it. Um, and this adrenaline-fueled reaction means actually also in our brains that uh, it reduces the activity in our prefrontal cortex. So our problem solving and how we collaborate with others is, is impacted negatively by that. So that means we're not able to really bring our best. Uh, for me, I really experienced being on the boom and bust curve as a management consultant. I got so absorbed on a project that everything else in life fell by the wayside. Um, no hobbies or really struggling to make time for, for friends or it just wasn't wasn't enough. And I had a burnout in my late 20s. So that was really big bust <laughs> in order to course correct. And that's why we call it boom and bust. So when we really just focus on this next thing and then maybe take a, a weekend or holiday to recover and then the next thing again, but we're very much adrenaline fueled in this fight, flight or freeze mode responding to it. Um, and, and really when we need it the most, then our brain can't bring its best. So that's the boom and bust curve and, and learning what really puts us there, in my case, really needing um, to do things without flaws um, and, and perfectly. So focusing on that, so I wouldn't be able to, to find, couldn't poke any holes in it or find criticism in it. And that is what, for me, what was driving me on the boom and bust curve there. And then the performance curve on, by contrast is actually where we're fueled by our sense of passion. We want to create things in life. We're seeing opportunities. So it's a very different way of operating. It doesn't mean there aren't challenges, but we're seeing the challenges um, from a point of view of being able to grow um, internally, helping us bring our best so our brain can really um, fire on all cylinders um, because there isn't that sense of threat. Like I'm not at risk by in this new project, for example, then I wouldn't feel like something is at threat. But, oh, wow, it's a new challenge. It's a new project. Let's see what we find out, a sense of discovery and, and seeing what we can create. Um, so that is what allows us to 
um, to use challenges to grow, to help us through in the moment, but also build a longer term capacity to deal with uncertainty and complexity and change um, in a way that is better for our brains and our bodies. And then we get to that sweet spot of actually being able to be more effective and have more well-being at the same time. And that's something I then really learned through the burnout. I mean, that was a big course correction, but really to spot these triggers within myself um, and find when am I getting close to the, the, the boom and bust curve again and how do I get myself off it? So being able to, to spot the signals when it's just, ooh, it's just, for me, that's, it's just stopping to be fun. That's a good signal for me. It just stop when work is stopping to be fun. I know that I need to course correct a little bit. Um, and it was also what made me first experience really how mutually reinforcing effectiveness and well-being can be. Because by working through my staff with a burnout, when I came back to consulting afterwards, actually, I was a lot more effective. I was able to juggle a lot more things at the same time. It was easier. Um, I was getting more done um, by being having identified really what was driving me and finding other ways then of of navigating myself and really managing myself there so for example um something around just getting something done first and the worst possible first draft and then perfecting it later um is not just a little hack but it really comes from knowing what my drivers are that get me on the boom and bust curve versus the performance curve and it could be different for things for different people but the the thing is really to understand ourselves better in order to do better and feel better. Do you think that the boom and bust curve is what we as humans default to? And if so, what's going on in the brain there? Is it anything to do with the hundreds of thousands of years of history where our lives very much have been, there's an adrenaline spike because you need to fix something, then you relax and regress an adrenaline spike. And is this new world that we're living in, in the last, say, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, the, the first opportunity that we've really had to aim in the very long term and build sustainable planned progress in our lives? Absolutely. I mean, I think you hit the hit the nail on the head. We, as um, you know, when we were out surviving and, and uh, in the jungle of uh, previous times, then, of course, that adrenaline fueled uplift was was necessary to run away from the tiger or hunt down some food or whatever it was. And then we'd go back and we'd recover in our caves and eat it and, and whatever. And that isn't there anymore, particularly, I think, in the last 40, 50 years where, perhaps less actually, maybe 20, 30 years, where we've got this always-on culture. We've always got that next LinkedIn post that we can make or that next you know, piece, of, piece of work that we can get done or email we can we can read or send. And so there's a constant stimulation and, a, and we get some dopamine hits from that. We get a, a boost from that. But actually the compounding and the effect on our nervous systems of pushing us into this kind of adrenaline and um, kind of cortisol state that, that is, is you know, helpful for us to perform in the short term at a certain level. I mean, not beyond a certain level, but at, up to a certain level. But, it, but when it builds up over time, it's detrimental to our brains. It actually leads to changes, structural changes in our brains that are, affect our ability to take decisions, bring our best thinking, you know, that it's affecting the parts of the brains that, parts of the brain that, that um, you know, that allows us to operate at our very best. Just to dive into that then, um, with these structural changes that happen within the brain due to this, uh, this pattern that we all seem to live at some point in our lives, is it easier to unpick it? 
sooner. So for example, if somebody is my age listening and they think I really need to get a grip of my personal and my professional life, and as such, I need to fight against those hundreds of thousands of years worth of wiring and programming that's now changed my brain, compared to somebody in say their 50s or 60s who's listening to this and thinks, I also want to make that change. Is it easier to undo those structural changes sooner or are we on a level playing field here? So two things, Sean. I think the first thing is, you know, there are different kinds of changes that go on in our, in our brain. So some are structural changes. And if you look at somebody who's had uh, high levels of, kind of chronic stress over their lifetime, they will have structural changes in their brain that actually, I don't think, can be unwind, you, unwound. You can't necessarily bring, build those back. So, so actually, the earlier we get ourselves out of these patterns, probably the better it is for the health of our brain in our middle middle and late ages. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I think at any age we can change. We all say, know you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I would argue that you just teach an old dog new tricks in a different, slightly different way. Probably there's something slightly different going on in their brains and they're probably gonna get to it in a, in a different way. I think generally as we age, many of us get more perspectives, we get more capacity, and we talk about this in the book, it's a, it's a notion called a vertical development, where we're more able to flex our mindsets, you know, we've had more experience, more life experiences that allow us to see that there are different ways to see things, and that perhaps the ways we saw things in the past didn't work out for us, and therefore, you know, we're not always right, we can, we can, we can be more flexible in our perspectives and our habits and so on. So I think that perhaps we gain more wisdom to, to, to do that as we as we age. Um, that said, when we're younger, those habits and mindsets, which are essentially habits of mind, are less inbuilt. They're less trained into us. We've just thought them or done them less. So our brain is less in, you know, the, the, the pathways through our brain that create these automatic defaults are less embedded. And so, yeah, we should have a bit more malleability and certainly until our mid-20s are the, the, the kind of basic wire, you know, the basic development of our brain isn't yet complete you know it happens in our mid-20s so if you catch it early enough then you know the brain is still going through the 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 kind of development that, that happens through adolescence and into our early 20s so i would i wouldn't want anyone to think that they can't change their brains we have this thing called neuroplasticity as adults it's just that it, it'll come probably in a slightly different different way so there are three catalysts that you speak of in the book that help us um grab a hold of this performance curve and ride it for want of a better word. They are wisdom, fuel and connection. Uh, just before we dive into each of those in a bit more detail, talk to me about the three of them from a top level point of view and how do they help us in life? So yeah, the, the three catalysts um, really work together um, and build up very nicely. So the first catalyst wisdom is actually understanding what we call our inoperating system. So understanding, we've already mentioned a few of those things of our core drivers and, and mindsets, our emotions, and also our habits. So the things that we do repeatedly. Um, and actually having a solid capacity to be able to identify what is at play within us and how to work with that. That's the wisdom catalyst. Then the second catalyst in fuel um, consists of a variety of different ways we can do this consistently and day to day, because that's the trick, really. It's not the, the big out. And when we talked about is it easier when we're younger or later, what really what we always need, regardless of age, is that consistency and making small changes daily that then compound. And there's a number of different ways that we can really fuel this inner development over time that helps us do that in a, 
um, in a way that gives us energy. So it's not that we're constantly fighting with ourselves or need to change things. And then lastly, connection is about doing this together and supporting and helping each other to bring our best and to grow our best. So it's how we can use our relationships, our conversations, the cultures we're operating in um, to help us be on that journey and be on the performance curve. So a big part of wisdom, as you say in the book, is working on your inner operating system. And that is taking control of things like your mindset, your emotions and your habits. What goes into that process uh, and what is the, I guess, the outcome on the other side once you have uh, a stronger internal operating system? So as you say, Sean, the, the, the pieces of the inner operating system are really our mindsets, our emotional responses and our, our habits. And our... Uh, belief is that we need to better understand how to take charge of each of those things and that starts by recognizing them you know so it starts by being able to notice when a mindset is passing through our um our head you know especially repeatedly and and what the outcome of that is so is it influencing our responses and if so is that helpful or unhelpful and if it's not helping us how can we shift that mindset to something more constructive so for example um you know, if I have a mindset that, uh, I don't know, being in being being close to my clients and being in meetings is uh, an important way that I add value. And actually, I realize that's leading me to a behavior of always saying yes to meetings, even when I don't need to be there and some of my team could be there instead. Then I can and I can see that that's leading to overwhelm and probably, frankly, me doing less good work overall then I can actually realize that's unhelpful and I can shift to something else. I can shift to a more constructive mindset like um, I can add most value by going to the most essential meetings and leaving the team to do a really good job in the other ones. And that's going to lead me to have a different behavior. And obviously, um, I'm going to say no to some meetings and I'm gonna, the team's going to do a better job without me, frankly, because I'll get out of their way. And I'm going to be able to spend my time on other things that... Um, where I can uniquely add value. So that, that, those kind of, that kind of awareness of mindsets and shifting of mindsets, I think is really the, the starting point for um, working on our inner operating systems. That said, we um, also know that working on our emotions and working on our habits is very, very key. And we cover a lot in the, the second catalyst, the fuel catalyst, about uh, habits, which we can come on to and talk about in a moment. And I know that it's also a subject of, of interest to, to you. And then likewise, also raising our awareness about our emotions. And you know, many of us, um, uh, would, that would often be the orphan, if you like, the thing that we would pay less attention to, or we would have less acuity around recognizing what our emotions are. So we've really tried to lay out in the book some techniques for building our awareness of, of emotions and being able to recognize, distinguish between them and name them and so on. Because once we understand that, you know, emotions can then be clues to what are, what's going on for us um, with our mindsets and just, you know, allows us to, frankly, even just naming an emotion allows our brain to, to settle itself down and, 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 um, and bring us back to our better thinking uh, or a better functioning. I, I think another part of this, another important part of the the, um, the wisdom catalyst is having a bit of a root map for what looks like um, or what, what can be the most effective uh, ways of shifting and developing our mindset. So we talk a bit in, the, in that part of the, the book about some mindsets that we found generally are very helpful for people. So many people are familiar with the growth mindset, you know, the work that was 
done by Carol Dweck and colleagues and, and now many other people around the world and how much of a difference to our brains and our performance the growth mindset can make. Um, but we also talk about the accountable mindset or taking, taking personal responsibility and again how that gives us a greater sense of control and choice uh, in difficult situations. And then also about another mindset we call the big picture mindset, which is um, taking a wider view, a wider perspective about what really matters. And, and I think when we start to have some of those route maps uh, to, to how to develop our mindsets in our inner operating system, then that can also uh, be a very powerful combination with the, the, the mindset shifting technique that I just described earlier. So Vanessa, I know you have a background in uh, meditation and I have for the fourth or fifth time this year tried my hardest to build a meditation habit because I buy into the benefits I am just not great at consistently sticking to it but something that I've been learning recently um, in trying to build a meditation habit is this idea to pick up on your point Laura of emotions this idea that emotions to a certain extent at least are somewhat controllable right I look at the three areas there in the wisdom catalyst of mindset emotions and habits and mindsets and habits at least feel and look and seem quite controllable whereas uh, before a few weeks ago I would say with 100% certainty emotions aren't controllable you can't control them there's nothing you can do about them but to pick up on your point Laura it's interesting that when you notice an emotion and you notice the kind of the physical uh, I guess or the feeling, for want of a better phrase, that each particular emotion gives you, just that act of noticing an emotion almost stops you in your tracks and stops you uh, falling onto this boom and bust, adrenaline fueled uh, curve of acting through emotion. So do you have any tips of how somebody can, I guess, be less emotive in their decision making and allow their emotions to drive them less? Yeah, so what you're describing is beautiful, Sean, this sense of like a river, of the emotion and we can sort of fall into it and it sweeps us away. Um, and something that can help is just the naming. Laura mentioned it earlier, just naming the emotion is a bit like putting, dipping the toe in the river, but not jumping into it. So even being able to identify what is actually this emotion in, and I mean, we feel and experience emotions through, through our physical being. And sometimes that can, also help to, if you can't quite name it yet, it's just to name the sensation in the body. So starting somewhere in the naming process, because that creates like a little distance to the emotion. We're not in the river, we're sort of seeing it, we're interacting with it, but we're not letting it sweep us away. And that's, that's where it can then all start and unfold and really take us on a different journey following um, through with the emotions, because um, we in some ways, I would agree with you that we, we can't directly control emotions. If you're feeling angry and saying, I don't want to feel angry, if we're suppressing it, that actually doesn't work. It does come out sideways and there's a lot of signs showing it, it doesn't work in any particular way and it's not helpful for us. So it's important that we acknowledge and actually allow ourselves to feel the emotion. But what we can control is how we're then relating to the emotion. So the sense of how am I in relationship to it? Am I in the river? Am I dipping my toe in? Am I resisting it? Do I not even want to go close to it? And then it becomes really interesting when we're exploring that, that, that sense of space, because then we can find, oh, okay, maybe this isn't so strong. It, it doesn't carry me away if I get into contact with that emotion. We can start inquiring. What is that emotion actually telling me? If I'm just coming from a bit more of that observer position, um, 
what is it about? What is the message or the gift here? And, and anger, since I mentioned it, for example, the gift is to to give us the the energy to hold our ground, to stand up for something, to speak our truth or our values. So it's a really important energy we, we need to have as, as human beings and we can't just strip it away. Um, so then having that inquiry of what is it trying to tell me that I'm feeling um, can then really help us on that journey to living a life well lived because it might be telling us something really important about what matters to us, our values, and where we might not be in integrity with it and help us get back into integrity and take action that is in line with what really matters with us. Sure. I have a very vivid memory of one of the first times I was working with Vanessa and we were standing in the lobby of a, of a client um, waiting to, to go in and, and, and do some work together that afternoon. And things were going you know, very well with this project. And we, we loved working with the client uh, in the main, but there was a particular issue that they had been pushing on and, and I had been getting really frustrated about it. And I, I mean, I was really very frustrated and I would say uncharacteristically kind of set this challenge and set back by this, this particular situation. And Vanessa said to me like, well, what are you feeling? What's actually going on? And I'm like, you know, what? I think I'm angry and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it because I, anger is not really the emotion that I feel most often. I'm more of a kind of, ang- I'd put myself in the more of the anxious category. That tends to be how I feel, but I was genuinely angry. And when I admitted it, I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> that already feels a little bit better. And then she said, well, okay. Anger, you know, that's a really good, clue of something that you uh you care deeply about something in some way that you feel is i don't know a boundary that's been violated or something that's really driving you to feel angry um what is it and i'm like okay actually i think that this particular thing that's going on just isn't fair it doesn't feel right and fair to me and there must be a better way to handle it and you know gradually (laughs) she calmed me down and settled me down and that process then led me to you know obviously well what am i going to do about it and what's the conversation i need to have and I was able to then that afternoon actually have the conversation with the client and come to a, a, a different solution. And it was actually a non-drama conversation. I think we found an outcome in about 10 minutes with, you know, no particular stress on either side. And I couldn't have done that without that process of naming the emotion. Why are you feeling that way? okay, what are you going to do about it? And so it's a very simple process that Vanessa describes there, but I think it is incredibly powerful. It's interesting this, and I, I've genuinely never heard this before, this idea of reframing emotions as important and useful and necessary indicators of something. Because I'll be the first to admit that when it comes to having any sort of emotion, um, within reason, right? I I suppress it to an extent, right? If I'm angry with a work situation because of the kind of person I am, I don't necessarily address the reason for that anger. I just hold on to it. Similarly, if I'm, I don't know, sad about something other than in select circumstances, I'll be like, okay, I'll deal with this myself. But actually, it's really interesting to hear both of your uh, stance that emotions are not only necessary, but actually really useful to uh, suggest what your next course of action should be if you were to act on them um, pragmatically. Absolutely. And there is plenty of reliable data where they put people in brain scanners and look at the effect on the brain of either following some sort of track of the kind that we just described versus attempting to suppress an emotion. And it's really, really clear that our brains settle down into a more productive state, what we would call something closer to an explore state rather than a protect state, so the fight or flight defensive reaction much more effectively and suppression if anything will actually 
increase a protect state in the brain. Yeah, I'm really glad, Sean, you're, you're picking up on, on this particular aspect. It's very close to my own heart because I had to, I had to learn and still am learning what my emotions are and what I'm feeling in a moment. Um, before my burnout, when somebody asked me, what, how are you feeling? I would give a long description of what I've been doing kind of all day or the thoughts going through my head, but actually not really what I was feeling because I, I, I didn't know and I didn't have a, a language even for it. And so I, I started off just learning what does my anger feel like? What are the variations of anger, irritation, annoyance, um, feeling grumpy, crabby, there's lots of lots of different words. And the more fine we can actually be in articulating those flavors actually is shown to have a beneficial impact for our brains, for our immunity. It's called emotional granularity. And there's very interesting research on that. Um, but, and, and it's really for that, that reason that it gives us such a powerful access to then working with mindsets and our habits as well and our whole inner operating system, but it's often underplayed because it can be something emotional we, we feel uncomfortable with or, or want to um, push aside or, or it's an inconvenience. But really, it's lovely to hear how you are identifying that, that gift in them um, because that means we can then actually really live wholeheartedly. We can't just switch off one emotion and only or, or keep one emotion and only have the good stuff in life. It's kind of all those different flavors matter and they're all important clues to have a life where we really feel it's well lived and not just on paper. So coming back to that notion of, of success as well, right? It's, it's a feeling state rather than um, something we're thinking um, or doing. Something else you talk about in the wisdom catalyst is this idea of hidden drivers. What are they and how do we uncover our hidden drivers and then take charge of them? So our hidden drivers are mindsets, but they're really some of the deepest, most embedded mindsets in our brains. And we're, they're likely to have grown up with us from really quite a young age. And we usually will have a couple of these hidden drivers that, that drive us quite, quite strongly. So for me, I've already alluded earlier to um, one around needing to feel valuable or be seen as valuable. So, so that sense of value, am I adding value in the world, really matters to me a lot. And it really bothers me a lot when I feel like I'm being useless or not adding value. Like that that really for me is a is a is a red flag. Any opportunity I get to add value, you know, somebody saying to me, Oh, it'd be really useful if you came to this meeting, I'm like, oof. Anytime that somebody says, um, oh Laura, that was so useful, oh, it makes me feel amazing. Um Equally, if I feel like I haven't been useful in some way, I feel quite threatened about that. That will, you know, wind me up and, and put me into something of a protect state. So uh, there are a number of these different hidden drivers and we lay out some of them in the in the book, at least the ones that we um, we have found to be to, to, to cover, you know, most most people that we come across and work on this material with Um and others of them might be, for example, a need to feel connected, you know, close to people, uh, a, a need for a sense of, of integrity and doing the, the right thing or a need to feel strong and uh, independent. I had a, a grandma who's sadly no longer with us who was just, you know, a model of that sort of sense of independence and desire for autonomy right to, to the very end of her life. It was you know, really remarkable in how it drove her to 
to, to manage her life. Um, but other members of my family obviously bring, you know, many different different flavors of these hidden drivers, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, makes for a rich and and uh, yeah, colorful life. But the point is that these drivers um, wrap then influence a lot our mindset. So they'll often be the ones that are kind of fueling and driving a lot of the other mindsets that lead to what we do. So if I have a need to feel valuable, then, you know, I'm going to have a mindset like, you know, I can add value by being in meetings or um, need to say yes to projects when clients ask because, you know, that's a request for me to add value, you know, whereas actually maybe I'm not the best person to do that. And I could could think about doing it, you know, to passing on the work to somebody else or, or saying no or whatever it is. So it's um, by raising our awareness of these hidden drivers, we can then start to make choices more deliberately about um, how, how they let us guide, how they guide our lives. So in some senses, we can have them, we can drive them, you know, we can have them drive our lives rather than be driven by them without really being aware of it. So a process I've heard in the past, and correct me if this is completely off track, but I've heard that a really useful way to uncover your your values, your real values, and I guess in a sense, therefore, your real uh, hidden drivers is not to sit down with a bit of A4 paper and write down, write down my values are X, Y, Z, but to look at the recurring patterns of things you do in life and then dive into what is driving me to do that, right? So you speak about um, wanting to be useful and wanting to be value driven. And so, of course, that manifests in lots of different things you do in life. Do you have a process that people can follow to maybe look at the patterns that they always fall into, look at the things they always choose to do first and then derive their hidden drivers from that? So, Sean, absolutely. I think there are a few different ways into this. One way is, as you say, to to look at patterns of behavior. And actually, the method that we encourage people to most often follow is to focus on this notion of protect and explore states in the brain, because we believe that the hidden drivers are the fast track route to being in explore state or being drawn into protect state. Anytime we see an opportunity to meet our needs, we're drawn towards explore state. And anytime we have a, have, you know, have a real sense of threat, the chances are that that's somehow going to touch back to our hidden drivers. So we ask people to think about a time when they, or times when they're most often in protect state or most often in an explore state and then peel back you know why did you feel that way or why do you feel that way and what's that telling you and actually we'll often as preparation for leadership programs rather than have people do 360s or anything like that just go around self observing themselves for a couple of weeks you know when are you in protect state what puts you in there when are you in explore state what puts you in there and then work with that to to decode back to to the drivers that that fuel them most strongly so those are definitely methods you can use the set of hidden drivers that we outline in the book comes from a methodology called the Enneagram, which I'm a great fan of. And I've you know, followed that, that school of thought for some time. And again, you know, references in the book as to how people can uh, take questionnaires and explore that more. So that's one method to get to hidden drivers. There are also a number of other um, instruments, you know, psychological, psychometric tests that will, psychometric uh, techniques that will help get to hidden drivers through that more structured route. So the the second catalyst in the book is fuel. So we have now worked out what drives us. We've worked on all of these base level foundations and we've developed our internal operating system. How do we stay moving on the performance curve? Yeah, so a really, really big aspect is having a sense of purpose. 
like a North Star, you know, what, what is that even for? Why do I even want to be on the performance curve? What, what really matters in that sense in my life? What gives me a sense of purpose and makes life lean and meaningful? Because all this inner work is also work. It takes effort. And unless there's a reason to put that effort into it, and we know that it is, we're missing out on an important sense of fuel. Um, so, and that doesn't need to be a big save the world kind of purpose. It could be um, much, much smaller and something we can build into every day. So for example, um, it, it could be a sense for just wanting to, to bring my best to every interaction I have, um, because that might see that as, as being the foundation for really um, bringing out our potential and helping others bring out their potential as well. So how do I do this in this conversation or in this meeting now? How can I bring more of that into it? Um, and and that can really help us day to day. Um, the second thing we would really put in here is, is to have what we call a performance curve habit. So in your case, it might be meditation. You're getting into something we really do regularly that helps us build our self-awareness and our self-management. Um, and that could be something we do more with a, with a mind, with a head. So working with mindsets could be working more with the, the emotions, the heart aspect, maybe with our hands, actually drawing or making things. So there's different what we call um, um, channels to access really our inner worlds um, or, or moving our bodies as well. A regular exercise or just having putting on music in your kitchen and having a bit of a dance around something that shifts our our inner focus. Um, and those are then the, the check-in moments and, and little practices that really compound over time to help us also when it's really intense in the heat of the moment to be able to take that step back and say, where am I coming from? Am I in protect now? Am I more unexplored? If I'm in protect, how do I reset myself? And that in itself builds like a muscle, um, that ability to, to reset. And of all the people we interviewed for the book, it was one of the most consistent things throughout, even though they came from very different walks of life, is that they had a set of practices they would do regularly, whether they needed it or not, in order to have it ready for when they needed it. It sounds like a lot of this, uh, this fuel on the performance curve comes down to having a really clear guiding purpose or set of purposes. How do you go about finding what your purpose really is, especially in such a, an independent world where we're all told to fend for ourselves and that our success is up to us. But there's, there's little meaning and there's little happiness to be found in just looking after yourself and just looking after your bank and these kind of things. How do we find real purpose that will actually fuel us? Yeah. Um, so we define two characteristics in the book of what makes for a powerful purpose. The first one is that it's really matters to us like it's heartfelt it resonates with us emotionally the second one is that it is bigger than just ourselves or our immediate friends or family so not coming from a sense of, of self-serving um in a way very simple it, it's again it's a matter of playing detective or turning detective on yourself for a little bit as well and and just paying attention to the times where that you experience a sense of joy um, a sense of joy or where you're doing something in life and, and what and asking yourself what what is that um, what really lights me up and is also serving something bigger at the same time because um, because those are then the, the clues that help us identify 
what could give us a bigger purpose. And it might be um, originally starting off with something like um, just enjoying nature and, and finding, oh, I really, when I'm out in, in greenery and nature, how can I bring a bit more of that into it? And maybe things from there develop. So starting small is really important with purpose and doesn't changes over time anyway for most people. So it doesn't need to be immediately, oh, I'm going to go out into um, the jungle and save the orangutans. So it doesn't, for some people, that might be the case. But it, it, in order to bring purpose into our lives and fuel us, it doesn't need to be that big thing or, or big action. And it's more about paying attention to it day to day and then taking a step at a time and then building it from there on. You speak in the book about paradoxical thinking. What is that? So quite often in our lives, we'll feel under pressure to make some kind of choice or trade-off. So shall I be more effective or shall I have well-being is a really good example of that. But in companies or an individual, when we're making individual choices, we're likely to face those trade-offs on a fairly regular basis. Shall I work hard today or go outside and enjoy the fresh air? Shall I invest in my operations in Germany or in France? Shall I spend my budget on marketing or on research and development. You know, there's many of these choices that we have to make. And very often we'll frame them at exactly as I've just done as a either or choice. Or perhaps we might then realize that there'll be some kind of trade-off that we can make. We're like, oh, you know, I could work at my desk really hard for a couple of hours and then I could go and get half an hour of sun at the end. Or I could spend half my budget on France and half in Germany or, and so on. Paradoxical thinking challenges that notion that we have to choose between one thing or the other. It says, actually, if we are um, smart and challenging in our thinking and we, we manage to bring enough freshness to it, enough creativity, there's probably a way where we can actually unlock this paradox and have the two things, the two kind of choices or trade-offs, the polarities, if you like, complement each other in some way. So in the way that we've outlined, in fact, the performance curve is an attempt to uh, bring paradoxical thinking to performance. We're trying to say, look, if we can boost our well-being, we can have more effectiveness. If we can have more effectiveness, we can boost our well-being. And the unlock for that is to work on our inner operating system. If we actually stop thinking about just being effective or just having well-being, and we actually think about working on our inner operating system, we'll actually unlock both things and the two will become mutually reinforcing or complementary. And the same applies to some of these other examples. Well, you know, what if instead of choosing between marketing and research and development we were actually to say you know is there a way that we can do our r&d that gets us marketing publicity or could we somehow have i don't know a competition um for r&d that, that got us visibility and, and publicity brought brought people in so we we start to think about creative solutions rather than accepting this either or choice and we have found and we've worked with clients on this that it's actually a very powerful way of doing more with with from with less. So a very powerful way of essentially getting effectiveness without um, having to put quite so much into it, getting results without having to put quite so much in. So that's why we put quite an emphasis on it in, uh, in the book, because it is something that could fuel us to, to be on the performance curve. I was smiling during your answer there because I have your book in front of me and I'm reading the subtitle. Um, and that paradox is almost a buy-in for this entire thing, right? To go back to what I spoke at the very beginning, we have been led to believe that success and well-being are mutually exclusive. And I followed that path for a few years. Like I said, for the last two years or so, I've been trying to tread both paths with varying levels of success. But it almost seems that without truly believing 
that you can actually have both without truly believing that one feeds the other and isn't obtained at the cost of the other. None of this makes sense. So it's really interesting to hear that answer. So the third catalyst is connection. What role does connection play in all of this? So in connection, I would say that that's where it all comes together because we don't operate in isolation as human beings. When we talk about our inner operating system, the way it actually formed in childhood is actually in interaction with other people um, through the experiences we have together, etc. And that's where incredible power also lies to help us then be on the performance curve and operate in much more of an explore way, um, creating the life we really want to live when we have people around us who are supporting us in that. And it's a huge potential to actually um, become more aware of ourselves when we have people around us who um, who also bring an approach of wanting to do so <laughs> for themselves um, and, and can help us in identifying what is really driving us. The, the conversation Laura described, we're doing that for each other, with each other, to really help us identify where am I, my, where am I getting stuck now, asking each other some questions, etc. So there's, there's a huge potential to actually do this work with each other and therefore create much more impact, not just ourselves, but also in the lives of the people around us and help them have better lives as well. Um, so with our friends and family and the communities we're interacting with, and it, it doesn't need to be a sort of deep therapy session. It could be just a couple of questions of, well, how are you really feeling about this? What would you really do if, if there weren't any constraints? Um, what would you like to see happen? Um, and it can be through through little conversations that we actually pull each other up to a higher level rather than the down to the lowest common denominator. Um, and that's what's behind the the catalyst there in particular of how to do that in um, one-to-ones or looking at cultures and more systemically um, so that we can collectively help each other bring our best to solve those problems we're facing on, on the planet today, um, which are challenging, which are difficult, which are beyond any of us in alone, um, where we need to work together and really bring our collective best as well. And do you have any pieces of advice or frameworks of how we as individuals can find almost the confidence within ourselves to be the first mover in that situation? Because when we look at our world right now, whether it's the fact that none of us speak to our neighbours, whether it's the fact that we have small talk and nothing else of our colleagues, or whether we walk past people in the street who may need help or who may have an interesting story and neglect to even speak to them, it seems as though we're in this environment where nobody talks to anybody, nobody has these developmental relationships. And so the onus is almost on us as individuals to begin them to to get that ball rolling how do we do that yeah i've got some some thoughts sean can you say just first of all a bit more in terms of what the barrier is because very often it's identifying the barrier i mean i could also talk to why not just kind of do it but often it's about understanding the barrier that helps us unlock it to move forwards so in both my experience but also observing those around me it almost seems to be that there is a social norm Maybe this says a lot about me and the people I know, but there's a social norm that you just don't necessarily uh, speak openly about these things, look at how you can assist others and kind of build as a collective rather than just focusing on yourself. And to break outside of that, to start these conversations, to begin um, talking to people in the way you describe, you almost need to find that confidence within yourself to be the one who's a bit weird to begin with, to fall outside of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So 
just like we have individual mindsets in ourselves that are just recurring thinking patterns or certain assumptions we're making, the same operates at a collective level of what relationships look like, what we talk about, what we don't talk about, norms. Um, in society, what is done, you know, British culture has particular ways that you might be um, alluding to there as well of just don't talk about those kinds of things, whereas some other cultures might be much more open to show their emotions, for example, when you're thinking more of Latin cultures. Um, so there are cultural mindsets and, and ways of behaving. And yes, to, to create different results means doing something differently. And that takes courage. So a couple of things there, if that's around finding that courage or, or the confidence to do that, if you know that that is something you actually really want to do, is to ask yourself, well, what do you have to lose? What if you didn't do it? What would you, you look like? What would your life look like? Do you want to be that person? And actually that can help unlock it. Or in a more positive way, what could, um, could be the result of that? What could you create by being a bit courageous and, um, and, and breaking the mold a bit? What would, um, how, I think something very it allows you to get personally in touch with something that really matters to you there and that fuels you to then take the action and have the courage to break through something that might be instigating a bit of fear to to stick your head out of the mold in that way um and and i can definitely re relate to that how often do i go about doing some shopping and just head down or oh, this is just me in the supermarket when I'm noticing something of, of somebody maybe maybe struggling or being angry about something and what makes you actually stop and ask you know can I help you um so and to me that's that's an often questions around who do I actually want to be um and what might happen if I if I didn't do something um some thoughts there Laura do you want to add so Sean, I can add something here. I think Vanessa's talked about how we can relate to people that we perhaps don't know so well and, and make steps towards having a more authentic, vulnerable conversation with them. And I think that's part of this. I also think that another way to build that connection is to think about who in your life you're already relatively close to, but perhaps you're not stepping into the territory of inner operating systems. And how might you be able to do that? And that might be family members, close friends, or even work colleagues and saying, actually, you know what, let me pick one or two people and just see if I can build a tighter connection in the way that we would describe it that supports us both to grow our inner operating systems. And then once you've got more of a model for that with a couple of people, you can then think about the other people um, where you'd like to continue to do more of that in your life, as, as you and Vanessa are alluding to. I have a very close friend with whom over the last several years I've worked hard well, we've worked hard together to do this and we actually do it through the vehicle of setting New Year's intentions together. So we think a bit about what we want to accomplish in a year or have the year be like, what we want to experience. And then we talk a lot about how we're going to do that, the, the barriers and the challenges to get there. And it's not simply the New Year's resolution of I want to go running three times a week. It's much more profound than that about the choices we're making in our lives, what holds us back. It's really inner operating system territory. And I think, you know, having that relationship with my close friend and, and doing that each year, you know, it's been hugely enriching for both of us. And I think a, a large part of um, how I've gotten through the, the challenges I faced in parts of the last few years has been because of the support of that tight connection. And then I think that's also given me 
confidence to shift the nature of my relationship with some of my other friends to get to that territory faster because I know what that looks like as a friend I know what I can bring and I know how much benefit there is for for me as well so another of the really important components of connection in the book is the idea of leaning into both vulnerability and empathy and much in the same way that we spoke about emotions being this thing that seem like you can't really control them right it's almost as if we think we're pre-exposed to either be vulnerable or not, to be empathetic or not. Um, for example, I have a really good friend and they say that they have no empathy whatsoever and they just kind of dismiss it like, okay, that's how I was born, that's fine, let's move on. How can we go about building more vulnerability, being comfortable with being vulnerable and also trying to be more empathetic? So it's interesting, Sean, what you mentioned around some of these challenges around um uh, bringing empathy in particular, and I'm going to leave Vanessa to talk more about that because she's much more experienced in the methods for, for building, you know, for developing and strengthening our techniques here. But, but I wanted to say one thing as a neuroscientist, which is we're, of course, all born, born with slightly different brain machinery, and um, some of us are going to have more natural capacities to be able to build empathy than others. That said, um, what we're really trying to encourage is for people to... Uh, work with their starting point, you know, to develop techniques that allow them to take their empathy a step on, you know, whatever the starting points. And what we've tried to do is very much think, how can we um, offer techniques to people and work with people in a way that allows them to just move forward um, wherever they are once they're clear that that's, you know, that's something they want to do to be able to build more um, connection. But perhaps over to you, Vanessa, because I'm sure you're going to talk more about how you can, how people can can do that. Yeah, so if- if people want to increase their capacity for vulnerability and empathy in order to have richer relationships, and maybe your friend is in that category or maybe he's not, but if that's something we, we decide for ourselves that we want to try out and, and bring more into, um, there's there's really a bunch of different things that are very simple that we can do. And it starts with um, with what we already covered a bit of really being a, a, able to identify the emotions in ourselves. So first of all, bringing a, a empathy to us. So empathy means I'm able to actually feel somebody else's emotions, even without them saying directly what they are, and step into their shoes to really experience their um, their experience, what what is going on for them. I can only do that, and there's really interesting brain stuff around that as well. I can only really do to the extent that I'm able to um, to ex- inhabit these experiences or emotions myself. So it starts with those basics of building the emotional muscles of being able to identify if I'm feeling sad or disappointed or or irritated, etc. Because that means I'm okay feeling that in me, and that means I'm okay feeling that in somebody else. So that's really important for building building empathy. And then the vulnerability is actually sharing that, letting other people see that in myself, um, even when it's hard. So vulnerability is from um from having a sense of fear of being exposed or rejected or embarrassed perhaps by when exposing something about myself. Um, and again, it's something that we have certain beliefs about maybe from past experiences, or there are certain situations where it's, it's not helpful to be more vulnerable. Um, so to be smart about it as well and saying, who is somebody I want to be more open with and have a deeper level of connection and and share more of myself and invite them to see if they also want to share more of themselves in that way. And then it can really be this very nice dance of empathy and vulnerability. I'm being a bit more vulnerable, showing something about myself. And then if that's met in an empathetic way, 
it encourages me to be then even more vulnerable and the two kind of then build on each other. And um, our brains actually produce, or for most, in many cases, produce what's called oxytocin. It's known as a bonding hormone, um, which makes it easier to see the other person really as like like me and, and have a, and, and I'm not saying the same, but as somebody, it, there is a we instead of an enemy or somebody who might be threatening me. And, and build a closer bond that is even that is really really important for what we just talked about developing together is to feel safe and being able to expose what lies below the surface in our in our operating system because then we can work with it but knowing that the other person will still see me as valuable or still see me as a human being who deserves to be treated kindly etc and, and not be judged or, or rejected Anecdotally, at least, there's an interesting um, feedback loop also between those two that I've discovered with this podcast, not to get too meta by talking about the podcast on the podcast. Um, but, you know, I've been doing this for 105, 106 weeks at this point. And the general format of this when I don't have guests on like the two of you is I just sit and I talk about my life and I disclose everything that's happened in a week. Uh, and that sitting here and being honest and telling my truth to whoever will listen for so long has taught me that being vulnerable is okay and that being vulnerable is a net positive in life and it was only when I was comfortable with being vulnerable that actually I grew more empathy if empathy is something you grow in as much as um for as long as the barrier stands in front of you that you feel that you can't be vulnerable and that you feel that you can't be truthful and honest in my experience at least, it becomes very difficult to be empathetic, at least vocally, because as soon as you empathize with somebody and say, I can relate, I'm similar, this or that, you're almost by default then having to be vulnerable. Does that make sense? Like they're, they're nicely connected if you let one play on the other. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting what you're describing there, Sean. I remember also times in, in my earlier life when I thought when, when people were maybe crying in, in public or showing that it's like, oh, that's a bit weak or pathetic. So their vulnerability, I, I couldn't actually be empathetic towards because I wasn't allowing myself to have that vulnerability and acknowledge those emotions, yet alone show them to anybody. And then actually through being more okay, like you're describing with, with the vulnerability and, and seeing also the, the richness in our human experience and then sharing that suddenly I, I started to see wow, how courageous for somebody to show that they care so much about something that they're showing their tears in public, for example. And, and how, how our interpretation of what we're seeing can really change so significantly based on where we ourselves are coming from and what we've uncovered and our own inner operating system is, is really fascinating to me. And I'm really glad to hear that you've, you've made those experiences as well. Yeah hopefully in inspiring and encouraging other people to open up more as well and that they don't have to carry all their burdens by themselves through life. Yeah. So something that this book or the writing process of this book has allowed you to do is have really interesting conversations with really interesting individuals all around the idea of redefining performance and success and uh, not neglecting well-being as a byproduct of that. Generally speaking, from a high level point of view, what are the commonalities between the individuals you spoke to and what did they teach you? Yeah, so the interview uh, conversation process for this book was just such a privilege, a gift, a rich experience. I approached it with some 
trepidation I have to say I was a bit nervous and then I realized it wasn't really about me and you know I just you know needed to ask the questions and 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 these wonderful people that we we uh, asked to participate gave us you know such a rich set of answers and we chose people who are very diverse so um there's there's a uh, some very successful business people from different, very different business sectors. There's some people in the more kind of humanitarian charity space. There's some people in the the, the performance space, people who have achieved great feats. So There's really quite a range of um, ages, genders, nationalities and everything in the group of people that we, we chose. But there were definitely some commonalities, as you outlined. And I think one of those was a very clear sense of purpose. So everybody knew what they were really trying to bring. And perhaps that sense of purpose had navigated you know shifted a little bit over the years for some people it was there when they were 20 and it was still broadly the same for others it it had migrated a bit but it it was very clear I think a second thing that was um a real surprise to me was how deliberate they were about planning their year and I mentioned that I have a kind of yearly planning process with my um close friend but their level of planning for the year took it to another level. So they, many of them would have a sense of, you know, this is what this year is about. And by the way, I'm going to break this down into quarters and I'm going to break the quarters down into months and I'm going to break the months down into weeks and daily and I'm going to communicate it with my team. There was just a very, very clear sense. And they would often, many of them have a a yearly moment where they took stock. So for some, it was a retreat. For others, it was a, a family holiday and they take a couple of days out. For others, it was a, a you know a conversation in the way that I described where they would really step back and look back and you know, reflect backwards and then think forwards. And they might adjust. Of course, things don't always go according to plan as we've found, particularly over the last couple of years. But but they would be very deliberate about having that shape their year. And I think that would have been a, you know, a large part of success for for many of these people because they were so deliberate and thoughtful about it. And then I think finally, um, Vanessa alluded to this earlier, but many of them, if not all of them, had some form of practices. You know, they they might appear superhuman on the outside, but actually, of course, they're human beings just with a super way of, of bringing their best. That's really what it came down to. And whether it was getting through great adventures, challenging performances, leading in complex uh, business setups, they had some kind of practices that allowed them to prepare to bring their best each day and reset in the moment. And sometimes they weren't even necessarily completely aware of what those practices were. But when we started asking them about it, they're like, oh, you know, yeah, you're right. I, I have this and I have this and I have this. And those things they'd accumulated over the years um, or adjusted, you know, brought in new practices they needed to in new situations and and were very dear to to them and to their their way of of operating daily so if somebody's been listening to this and they think that this all sounds brilliant i want to get off of that boom and bust curve i want to get onto the performance curve uh, and they might want to read the book but they know that it's going to take a couple of days to arrive and they're feeling really motivated to make a change right now in the moment what's one thing they can do to get started on this journey great So one thing would be to pick something that you want to do differently and don't make it a massive kind of thing of, I want to spend an hour meditating each day, make it really small and achievable. So maybe five minutes or, um, do, do something. So I mean, a practice that allows you to just spend a bit of time with yourself to get into that sense of self-awareness, um, self-management sense of bringing your best and getting used to 
being aware of just am I in protect or explore and, and shifting that and then commit to just that. Like if, if, if it's start every day with dancing to your favorite music track or if it's the sit down meditation, just pick something and then commit to it that you will do it that day regardless of the time. Even if you're intending to do it in the morning, if you don't do it in the morning, don't like, oh, I missed it to tomorrow morning, but make sure you do it that day and really commit, even if it's 11 or p.m. or midnight and you want to go to bed and you're dead tired, and even then I will still do it because it's so important that I do it today. And that is really what, what built such a powerful muscle to do any changes. And I found that really once I committed to doing something regular like that, it became much easier to make the time in the morning because I knew I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't escape from it. There was no pushing it off. I would be doing it anyway. So that would be the singular thing. Pick something, pick something small and commit to doing it. Amazing. Uh, your book, The Performance Curve, Maximize Your Potential at Work While Strengthening Your Wellbeing is out right now. I'm going to make sure that there is a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to go and grab themselves a copy. Uh, in the meantime, where can people go to to connect with you online or find out more about the work that you do more generally? So we've got a website for the book and you find our details on there as well. And that's www.performancecurvebook.com. Amazing. Laura, Vanessa, thank you both so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.